Thank you so much, Pastor Josh. I am so honored to be here today and uh, a little bit overwhelmed to see God's grace in our midst and what he's doing through this church. Uh, know that you are loved and prayed for, and it's truly incredible how the Lord has worked and what he's done in this short time. And as Pastor Josh said, uh, in the midst of so much uncertainty, we serve a God who is certain and he is powerful, and he has no limitations, and he's bringing about his will and bringing people to faith in himself, and his church is growing, and we're excited about what the future holds for you. So I bring you greetings from Cross Lanes Baptist Church and also from the North American Mission Board, uh, who I have the opportunity to serve in the SEND network, and uh, you have to say that carefully, S-E-N-D, SEND, and uh, we are blessed uh, to see churches being planted across uh, West Virginia and over into Maryland and wherever God might see fit uh, to have a movement of his spirit for the word to take root and for his uh, church to grow and flourish. So I want to pray for you and uh, just say congratulations on your second anniversary. And then after I pray, uh, we're going to get into God's word together. Father, all credit and glory and honor goes to you this day. And as we have gathered here at Hagerstown Church, uh, we're in awe of what you have done. In just these short months, really, uh, collectively, uh, you have begun a work here that we believe is going to flourish for generations to come or until Jesus returns. So our hope is in you. Uh, we pray, Father, for wisdom for provision, for the power of your spirit to work in this place, for the word uh, to take root in people's lives, and for the gospel to go forth, that this would not be the end, but it would be a continuation of a multiplication movement uh, to see more areas that are in darkness uh, receive the light of Christ uh, through his church. So now, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has inspired it, that it is true uh, from the beginning to the end, and that it gives us witness to your character and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray now that you would give us understanding and that through your word, some would be drawn to faith, others would be strengthened, and all of us would be challenged uh, to live the life that you've called us to, keeping our eyes on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Our text today is verse 31 through 37 in a message entitled, Jesus Does All Things Well. We'll read the scripture here together in just a moment. Uh, the biblical meaning of excellence or something that is excellent is something that is distinguished, valuable, pleasant, honorable, and noble. Someone who is excellent is someone who excels, who surpasses others, who is excellent and goes beyond others in all things. Brian Harbour noted in Rising Above the Crowd that success means being the best, but excellence means being your best. And I wonder today, what would you say that you're good at? I'm convinced that everybody is good at something. Uh, what do you have the capacity to do well? 
Maybe you're very strong in whatever area of vocation it is uh, that you are serving in currently. You're particularly good in that area. Maybe you're strong in athletics and competition and uh, you're able to excel and do well in that area. Perhaps you're strong in academics and the studies come easily to you and uh, you're able to uh, exceed your, even your own expectations. Everybody can do something well, but the reality is in our humanity, none of us can do all things well. Our focus today is on Jesus, who the Bible says does all things well. We're talking about Jesus, the one who came from heaven to earth, the incarnate son of God. We're talking about the one who is the exact representation of God. And we can say with confidence that he is excellent in his being. He is excellent in his character. He is excellent in his life and he is excellent in his actions. The very nature of Jesus is that his excellence is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. Jesus does all things well. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, the word of God says again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. And putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately, verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. And they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is an interesting miracle in the sense that it's the only uh, place that it's recorded in the Bible here in Mark's gospel. And it's at the conclusion of a narrative, if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, that begins back in chapter 6 and verse 32, and then runs through chapter 7 and verse 37. We're given the route that Jesus takes here. He was in Tyre, that was a city of, that was about 20 miles uh, to the north. Uh, and he goes through Sidon, which was a coastal city, and he turns to the southeast to the region called Decapolis. Now, that's kind of a complicated way of saying that he took the long way around. Now, if you'll recall, the people of the Decapolis region had actually asked Jesus to leave back in Mark chapter 5. Jesus had cast the uh, legion of demons out of the Gadarene demoniac, and the demons entered into the herd of swine, and they all drowned. And now Jesus is back, having not been there all that long ago, having been asked to leave, and here he is, and they welcome him with open arms. So we ask ourselves the question, why the change? What was the difference? 
Well, the answer is found also back in Mark chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20 in particular. You see, what happened was the redeemed man who had been cleared of the demons went and told everybody what Jesus had done for him. He was an example, a life example of an effective witness They had rejected Jesus, and Jesus would have been justified to never go back to that area. But now Jesus is back, and he's given them another opportunity to see his power and to believe. So he remains in a territory that had a very strong Gentile presence, but I think we would overstate the point if we believed it was only Gentiles because it was common in those cities even for there to be uh, some Jewish presence. So it's not abundantly clear from the text whether it was all Gentiles or a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. But what is clear from the text is that Jesus encountered some people there who begged him to put his hand on a man who could not hear and a man who had difficulty speaking. Now, what stands out to us right at the outset of this passage is that this story is about a miracle. That's the backdrop of this passage of Scripture. And as a backdrop to this passage, I think it's helpful for us uh, in considering what the purpose, the significance and really the prominence of miracles are in the Bible. This is not something we can just skip over because with it being front and center at the story, uh, we've got to understand the significance of it so we can understand what Jesus is teaching and who he is. Now, a miracle is a surprising or a uh, welcome event, generally, that's not uh, explicable by natural or scientific laws, and is therefore understood to have come from divine agency. Or to say it another way, it's something that surprises us, and we say, this couldn't be from people. This has to be from God. Miracles in the Bible highlight the direct action or the intervention of God in the world. Miracles in the Bible uh, transcend the ordinary laws of nature and usual expectations. We find the words signs and wonders powers and mighty works that are also used sort of interchangeably with the idea of a miracle. So what is the point of a miracle in scripture? Well, we know certainly that God used miracles to reveal his character in the world. The miracles are a demonstration of the authority and the power of God. After all, uh, creation itself was a miracle. And there are a number of other examples in the Bible where God intervenes in these celestial events that cannot be explained by human power or human strength. And then God also uses miracles to authenticate his messengers. You remember in the days of Moses and Joshua and then Elijah and Elisha, and then certainly in the days of the apostles, there were a proliferation of miracles during these times. And then God used miracles in the life and the ministry of Jesus to testify to his identity as the Messiah. And one commentator said miracles in the life of Jesus demonstrate the following. God is with Jesus. Jesus is from God. God has sent Jesus and Jesus has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Jesus is approved by God. The father is in Jesus as Jesus is in the father. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. 
Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is God in the flesh. So as God the Father used the miracles to authenticate the messenger himself, he had yet another purpose, and that was to authenticate the message that was being proclaimed. So what the Lord did was he used these miracles in order to confirm his word by the signs that he used in order to bring people to faith. So in these few moments that we have together, I want us to focus on Jesus, thinking about this idea of the miracle being the theme of the passage, but Jesus being the one who is high and lifted up, Jesus being the one who does all things well. And what can we learn about Jesus from this miracle in Mark chapter 7? First of all, we learn that Jesus meets us in our condition. Jesus meets us in our condition. Look again in verse 32 and then in verse 33. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking, and they come with a sense of urgency. There was no time to waste. They wanted to help him. So they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And verse 33 indicates that Jesus took him away from the crowd in private to deal with him. Now, I want you to put yourself in this man's position just for a moment. Imagine being someone who cannot hear. Let's take it a step further. I want you to imagine not being able to hear anything. There's no noise. There's no sound of the fire station nearby sounding the bells. There's no street noise to be heard. There's no music to be heard. There's no crying babies to be heard or people laughing or birds singing or waves crashing the shore. We live in a world that is made up of sounds. But here this man was in a condition where he could not hear anything. To make matters worse, his speech impediment was so severe that he could not articulate his words. At best, he stammered if he tried to talk. And I think if he had been born deaf and mute, he would not have had a concept of words or language. And I think it's likely that he probably developed this issue a little bit later in his life, maybe because of a disease or maybe because of some sort of injury. And the man, although he had limitations, had some people around him who cared about him. You know, it's important to have people around you that care about you. It's important to have people that see you in your condition and are concerned about possibly helping you. They believed that just as Jesus had cast out those demons, that he had the power to heal their friend. Now, Mark uses an extremely rare phrasing here to describe the man's speech disability. Some think that it's an allusion to Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Isaiah 35 and verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That was a messianic reference looking forward to when Messiah would arrive and what he would be able to do in people's lives. The fulfillment of the prophecy was certainly anticipated in the days of the Messiah. And here was this request of the laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands was actually a, a familiar practice to the Jews. They equated that with blessing and 
with healing and with intervening in a person's circumstance. The crowd maybe had seen Jesus lay his hands on others as he healed them. And Jesus takes the man aside in order to meet him where he was. Now watch this. Jesus loves and values people that other people may not see the value in. The things that we look at and we think, well, that person is valuable. That person uh, is deserving of our love or that person is deserving of our help. And yet Jesus looks at people and he sees people that may not be loved by others or valued by others. He cares about them. And those types of people are also often drawn to Jesus. The disciples would be witnesses of what Jesus was about to do. The physical condition of the deaf man without, with these speech limitations, I think, parallels our spiritual condition when we are lost, separated from God, and dead in our trespasses and our sins. In fact, when we read a circumstance like this in the scripture, if we're like some in the crowd were, where we're only looking for the miracle, we're only looking for that sensational moment, we're only looking for that application of power in that instance, then we miss the bigger picture of what the Bible is teaching us. And what we're learning here is our own condition of helplessness and hopelessness if Christ doesn't intervene. Now, the Bible is clear that our problem condition is sin. Our problem condition comes from the fact that we have disobeyed God. We have offended the holy character of God. The righteousness of God demands a penalty be paid. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to his righteousness. But the good news is that Jesus came on a rescue mission. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus came to meet us in our condition. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. You remember in the birth of Jesus, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I don't want you to miss this idea here because throughout the Bible, God is revealed as the pursuer. God is the one who comes to us in our condition. From the beginning, God has pursued us. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not run toward God. They ran away from God. They hid from God in the trees of the Garden of Eden. And yet God pursued them and he asked, where are you? The picture that we get is of the creator seeking lost creatures. And he's seeking those lost creatures for the purpose of a heart of reconciliation. And in fact, in the Bible, we find God the Father seeking worshipers. He's looking down on earth from heaven. He's looking to see whose heart is his. And he compares himself with a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to go after the one, the one that is lost. He also compares uh, a woman combing her house on the search for a lost coin and a father looking out on the horizon awaiting the return of his prodigal son and a merchant that is seeking fine pearls. 
Ezekiel 34 and verse 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So here's the truth that we cannot miss. We would not understand our condition lost in sin unless Jesus had come to us. We would not know it unless God had pursued us. We cannot reach God on our own. The only way that we can reach God is because God has come down to us. And he is the pursuer of our souls. And what that does is it brings us to a place of awe to understand just how precious sinners are in the sight of God. That God today is concerned about you. He knows your name. He knows your circumstance. He knows your background. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. And yet he has come to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And we, as the psalmist was in awe, say, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Jesus meets us in our condition. But second, we learn that Jesus has our cure. Now, Jesus uses a curious manner of healing this man. You remember the miracles of Jesus throughout his ministry. He used different ways of healing. He healed sometimes with words, sometimes without words, sometimes in response to faith, at other times in response to the faith of another. He healed those who asked. Sometimes he healed those he approached on his own. So we ask the question, why did Jesus follow these steps? And why does Mark care to note them for us? And I think what Jesus did had a specific connection to the nature of the man's limitations, meaning that Jesus accommodated his procedure to the man's condition. Here in verse 33, Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. Now, I step back just for a moment because I realize that there is a very personal connection between Jesus and the sick and the broken. We are repelled often from the sick and the broken. The worse a person's condition is, the more off-putting it is for us. The more likely it is that we're to push back rather than to lean in. And here we find Jesus in this moment, he's not pushing back. He's not repelled. He's not running away. He's coming to this man, meeting him where he is. And we see that broken people are not an inconvenience for Jesus, but rather broken people are a focus of his personal concern and love. And that teaches us a lot. If we say and mean it, that we want to be the hands of and the feet of Jesus in the world. The actions of Jesus in this instance make sense in light of the need to communicate with a man who had lost all of his connections with the world in many ways. Jesus was signaling that he was about to address the hearing and the speech problem and how he related his actions to the man's ears and the man's tongue. And in verse 34, it tells us that Jesus looked up into heaven. Now, I'm always amazed in the scripture, the, the few times in the scripture where it says explicitly that Jesus looked up into heaven. And when Jesus looks up into heaven, we are drawn into the eternal fellowship that the triune God has had. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, one in essence and three in person. And Jesus now is communing with his Father. And his power was from heaven. And I think that was a sign to everybody that was around him that what he was about to do was to implement the power that had come from heaven. It was an indication in the life of Jesus of his prayerful communion with and dependence on God the Father. You know where we often look when we're in trouble? To ourselves, to other people, to the world. Is our first response when we're in need to look up to heaven, to depend on the Father? And then Jesus, the scripture says, sighed. He was moved by the man's condition. He groaned in a sense. This is similar to Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, where it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. John chapter 11 and verse 33. The phrase deeply moved in spirit came from an ancient word that described a horse snorting in distress. This was the humanity of our Lord who's identifying with the difficulty of the circumstance And he gives way to such a distress of spirit that he is physically affected by it. And the way that Jesus brought the cure to this man is a beautiful example of how we ought to reach out to our broken world. The look of Jesus. Do we even see the broken who are around us? The sigh of Jesus. He felt it. The touch of Jesus. All symbols of the compassion of the Son of God. Church, are we shaken by lives that are destroyed by sin? Do we have a genuine compassion that does not just feel, but a compassion that does? This area that you're ministering in is very similar to the area that I serve in. Things have changed drastically in our area over the past couple of decades. Drugs have ravaged our communities. People are desperate in their lives. They're broken. It's not always the people that are evident that are broken and hurting. It's sometimes the people that look like they're okay, but they're not really okay. I want you to know, church, there are people all around you who are not okay. There are people who are broken, and the reason that they're broken is because of their sin. They're broken because they live in a sin-fallen world. They're broken because they've been hurt and crushed by sin. You see, Jesus took on flesh, and he was willing to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in that moment, he told the man, spoke the words, be opened, essentially is what that word means. And the words of Jesus pierced his ears from the inside and his tongue was loosened and a spectacular healing took place in that moment. And now a man who couldn't hear anything could hear perfectly. A man who could not speak well because his tongue was bound up could now speak with clarity. And here he was as an example of Jesus bringing us the cure to the circumstance that we find ourselves in. You probably heard the story a few years ago, if you followed the Ebola crisis at all, 
the name of Dr. Kent Brantley. Dr. Kent Brantley was a doctor who fell ill with Ebola while he was serving with uh, Samaritan's Purse on the continent of Africa. He was eventually flown out uh, to the United States, but before he left, a 14-year-old Ebola survivor actually gave him a unit of blood for transfusion, and he ended up getting better, which was remarkable. Hardly anybody gets better uh, from Ebola, but yet he was healed, making a remarkable uh, recovery. Doctors think that when confronted with a virus, what the immune system can do is create antibodies to specifically target a virus and kill it and keep it from coming back. And once a person has the antibodies for that particular disease, they can actually have them stay in their blood for life. And he was healed because of that. We've heard about similar treatments during this whole uh, coronavirus pandemic uh, and the convalescent plasma therapy. It's a little bit controversial. Nobody knows for sure. Does it work or how long does it work? But it has shown promise. But those examples remind me that while we might find physical healing through something like an antibody that is introduced into our system, the only way that we can find spiritual healing is if we, by faith, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and we stand in his righteousness. It's only because of the cure that he brought that we can stand forgiven in the sight of God. You understand someday when your life on this earth is over and you step out into eternity, when you're in the presence of God, you will stand there if your faith is in Jesus Christ, not as the sinner that you were. You will stand as one who has been forgiven. And when God sees you, God will see you through the holy white righteousness of the Lord Jesus. You will stand justified, not because of anything that you've ever done or anything that you ever could do, but solely because of Jesus and the fact that he brought the cure and you believed in him by faith. First Peter chapter two and verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that We might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He did not ignore our defilement. He took our sins upon himself. He died in our place as the substitutionary atonement for our sins. And only Jesus has the cure. That brings me to the third point, that Jesus is worthy of our confession. You'll note here in verse 35 what happened in the healing and the miracle. And then you'll note in verse 36 that Jesus does something interesting. He charged them to tell no one, but the more he did so, the more zealous they were to proclaim it. As soon as the man was healed, Jesus is telling him to be silent. Now, why in the world would Jesus display his power and then he tells him not to tell anybody? Now, this is not the first time that Jesus ordered people to be quiet. He told the leper who was cleansed to say nothing to anyone back in Mark chapter 1. When he raised the little girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And I think the way to understand this biblically is that Jesus was communicating an issue of timing. He was simply not wanting to create a bigger stir in that moment than was necessary. He knew that his time had not yet come. He knew that the religious leaders and their opposition was looming. And he knew that the cross was going to follow. And then the directive of Jesus was also due to the fact that he did not want people focusing mainly on the miracle. He wanted people to focus 
on the message, on who he is. That's our temptation, again, to see the miracle. But you understand, in all these miracles in the Bible, if we get caught up in the miracles of the moment, and that's all we're focusing on, we've got to realize that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he died again. After this man had his ears open and his speech loosened, he died at some point, presumably. So the miracles are temporary, but the miracles point us to something, and more importantly, to someone who is eternal. That's the point. And what Jesus is doing here is drawing them in to a greater point. And what I want you to note is that there's a possible contrast in how they were and how we are. And here's what it is. Jesus told them to tell no one. And they told everyone. Jesus tells us, commands us to tell everyone and sometimes we tell no one. They were so moved that the more they were charged with concealing what had happened, the more they told the story. You see, when God saved you and he brought that cure to you, then your response to that spiritually, your responsibility from God spiritually is to tell the story of Jesus. To be his witnesses because we've received the Holy Spirit. And we're to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I wonder how faithful are we to be his witnesses. Let me make this point and I want you to hear me well. The future health and thriving and sustainability of Hagerstown Church will be directly correlated with your level of faithfulness in sharing the story about Jesus. That's what it'll be connected to. You can have a sweet fellowship and people like each other. You can do good ministries in the community. You can give money. You can do all the things that we would think about uh, would be a, a healthy type church. But it will be directly tied to the fact of whether or not you are proclaiming Jesus as Lord in your life, in your community, and to the ends of the earth. Because that's the reason the church exists. It's to bring glory to God. He's the one who gets the praise. He's the one who gets the honor. And Jesus is front and center of it all. And that starts in very practical ways. Us sharing with the people that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Us being a faithful presence in our community and honoring Jesus as we are. We've got the responsibility to tell his story and to share the good news. Maybe it was a miracle like this that inspired Charles Wesley to write the old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Church, Jesus is worthy of our confession. And I say to you as I come toward the close of this message, Jesus, he has done all things well. 
Look again in verse 37. It says that they were extremely astonished. They were amazed. And they said as a result of that, he's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. To say that they were astonished beyond measure is an over-the-top, double superlative statement. And they exclaimed, he's done everything well. And today, as followers of Jesus, we can look back to the past. And and you can even look back to the last two years of Hagerstown Church. And you can reflect on how Jesus has never failed you. Even when you were lost and you were a rebellious sinner, by grace he brought you to himself and he saved your soul. And you can say when you look back at your past and where you came from and the condition that God delivered you from, that Jesus has done all things well. And then you can look at the present and you can look at the blessings in your life and the patience that God has extended to you. And you can say, Jesus has done all things well. So today we're giving a resounding profession of faith and, and, and exaltation of the Lord saying, God, you've done this. The reason this room is full today is because you've done this. The reason that lost people have been saved is because you've done this. The reason that families have been strengthened and others have been reconciled is because you've done this. And because he's done this, all the glory goes to him. And we have confidence also to look at the future. And we know there's going to be twists and turns. I have no idea when the circumstances are going to get better from the particular circumstance that we find ourselves in with this pandemic, there's going to be victories and defeats, sorrows and sadness, burdens and blessings. But through it all, we have confidence to know and to believe that Jesus does all things well. All glory to our King. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. As we come toward a time of prayer. Here in just a moment, uh, they're going to come back and sing and offer some closing remarks regarding the service. And uh, in this moment, though, it's always an opportunity after we've heard from the word to respond to it because it's the Holy Spirit who inspired it. And he's the one who brings it to bear on our hearts and our lives. And I wonder, first of all, today, could you say that you are in Christ? If you're not, you can be. God stands ready to forgive you and to free you if you will repent and believe. And then if you are in Christ, are your eyes on him? Are you looking to him as the one who does all things well? Or are you bogged down in your own circumstances and the struggles that you're dealing with and the life challenges that you're facing. Friend, I want you to know that there is one who does all things well and you can look to him and he'll help you. He'll meet you at your point of need. May God grow in us confidence in who he is as we face the future and as we carry out his will in this church and to the ends of the earth. Father, we are grateful today that we can be given insight into this miracle that uh, Jesus uh, performed. We stand in awe of his power. We know that it is power that comes from heaven. It's a holy power that is unsurpassed. There's none like it. So as we come to you today, we exalt your great name. We lift up the name of Jesus and we bring glory and honor to him. I pray if there are any in our midst that don't yet know Christ, 
or maybe listening to this message now or later on even, that they would say yes to Jesus, turning from their sins and turning to the Savior by faith. God, we're asking that you would richly bless this church, that two years would simply be the beginnings of a foundation that would be stronger and more filled with the Spirit than even we could imagine, that you would fill the leaders and the servants of this church with a great measure of wisdom and strength as they serve you. And God, we pray that this would not be the end, but yet a testimony of a great beginning. And that through it, many lost would be saved, many saved would be strengthened, and through it all, that our Savior would be exalted. And we pray it in his name. Amen.